Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Join me today in the Old Testament book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 11 this morning. Psalm 11. I want to speak to you today a message entitled, When the Foundations Are Destroyed. Psalm 11, When the Foundations Are Destroyed. And uh, I want to begin reading uh, in verse number 1 and following. Notice, to the chief, the superscription says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loves righteousness, his countenance does behold the upright. May God add his blessings today as we look at when the foundations are destroyed. During the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, when he came into the city of Jerusalem on one occasion, he comes over the brow of a hillside and he looks over the vast expanse of the sprawling city of Jerusalem the city where God had placed uh, His name and was to call a people to Himself and He would be their God and, God and they would be God's people. And as Jesus looks out over that city, at their unbelief, at their imminent rejection of Him, at their continued rejection of all the prophets that had come before Him, of everyone that God had sent their way, the Bible says that Jesus begins to weep. He was brokenhearted over his city. He was brokenhearted over his people. And yes, we would even say that Jesus, who came unto his own and his own received him not, that he was even brokenhearted over his country as a whole, the nation of Israel. You see, Jesus loved his people. He loved the city. He loved all of Israel. And he loved all of humanity. And he didn't want ill will for his country. He didn't want bad things to happen to the nation of Israel. He wanted it to prosper. He wanted it to be a place of peace. He wanted it to be a place of of God's stamp of approval. He wanted God to be glorified in that place. But when he saw just the opposite, the Bible says that Jesus wept. Like Jesus, when we see our country doing what is right, And moving in the right direction, we celebrate that. But also like Jesus, when we see our nation and our people in our country going the wrong way and and going away from God, we too weep about that. And we are brokenhearted about that. And we want to do what we can and use our influence to turn the tide of of that. Do you know a recent Lifeway research study found that just over half of Protestant pastors, 56% to be exact, 
support showing patriotism at church during the weekend of independence. Just over half. Now, when I first read that statistic, I had to back up and read that again because I thought, surely it's going to be more than 56% of pastors of our Protestant churches that say that it is okay to put an emphasis on citizenship and on, on uh, uh, the independence of our nation and the birth of our nation on the 4th of July. But no, their research has said that only 56% support showing patriotism at church. There are many of today's Protestant churches that will not even have a flag in the sanctuary and will not say the Pledge of Allegiance to a flag. And many times they're reasoning, there are multiple reasonings, but, but one reason seems to be, well, we're more nas- uh, international than we are national. I said at the first service this morning, I actually had a staff person who said that to me one time, and he said, uh, he said well, I just view myself as more international and not national, but yet he still seems to be okay with receiving all the benefits that America has uh, for being here. There was no one that was more international than Jesus. Jesus so loved the world he came to die. He loves all of humanity, and certainly the gospel does make us international, and you don't have to be a Christian, or you don't have to be an American to be a Christian. And if you're a Christian, it doesn't make you a citizen, or if you're a citizen of America, it doesn't make you a Christian. We are international in that the gospel has broken down all the barriers of of race and nationality and all of that to weld us into the one big family of God. But at the same time, no one was more international than Jesus. No one loved humanity more than Jesus. But yet that did not in any way diminish his love for his people and his love for his nation. His love for the nation of Israel. In fact, the scripture says that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Former President John Quincy Adams said, The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Now, as Christians, we do not worship our country. Of course not. That's ludicrous. We do not worship our flag. Though we love our country and we love what our country represents and what our flag represents, we do not worship either of those. We worship God and we worship God alone. But here, I think it is very appropriate that we recognize and honor and celebrate the birth of our nation because God has used America in an incredible way. We still have rights and freedoms in our country that much of the world would give anything to have. And having been to other places in the world, there's not another place I would rather live than right here in the good old United States of America. And I don't see anything scripturally in error to recognize and to honor our country and the founding of our country, though we do not worship it. The psalmist said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What I want to do today is move through Psalm chapter 11. And I want to look at what we're to do when the foundations are destroyed. What to do when the foundations are destroyed. First of all, I want you to note that we place our hope in the Lord. That's what David says. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us here what the circumstances were 
as to why David wrote this particular psalm. Uh, some say that he was, he was hiding out from King Saul, and Saul was trying to kill him. Others say it was a, during a time when his son Absalom had rebelled, and Absalom was trying to kill him. Whatever the scene was when David wrote this psalm, it is certain just a cursory reading of the passage will tell you that he was a desperate man living in desperate days, and it was very, very difficult times for him. And he wrote Psalm 11, and according to the superscription above chapter 1, it says that, uh, that David wrote this, or just below the chapter heading, that David wrote this, gave it to the music minister or the choral leader to put to music as if this was to be sung throughout all of the land to say, we want to draw attention to the fact that, that the foundation of our nation is being eroded. And he was really calling people back to a, a time of, of national recognition and citizenship. But in all of that, he is saying that ultimately our hope is in the Lord. If you'll notice in verse 1, he writes, In the Lord I put my trust. How do you say to my soul, flee as a bird? To your mountain. Now notice, he doesn't say, I put my trust in my kingdom, the nation of Israel. He doesn't say, I put my trust in my 401k. That's a good thing right now, isn't it? He doesn't say that I put my trust in my material possessions or I put my trust in the military. What does he say he puts his, or whom does he put his trust? He said, my trust is in the Lord. And his friends were trying to get David just to flee and to run to another place. And David is like, if God can't take care of me right here, he's not going to take care of me if I run and hide somewhere else. And David is saying, ultimately, it's not the military, it's not the finances, it's not economics, it's not anything other than I'm going to place my hope in my relationship with the Lord. I said at the first service this morning that when I watch some of the news reports, in fact, Tina and I have been on vacation for a number of days this past week and, and didn't turn on the television. And I'm like, man, I could get used to this. Because every time I turn on the news, it just brings my blood pressure up to another level. And I'm going to have to fast from that more and more, I think, because it makes me feel better not to watch it. But every time I see it, it makes me want to, uh, to go get a couple of acres of land out in uh, Montana or South Dakota or somewhere and just build a wall around me and just kind of hunker down until I die so I can get away from all of this stuff. But I know that's not what God has called us to do necessarily. We're not to escape from the culture, but we're to engage the culture. Because you see, with the gospel, the gospel is God's medicine to a sick world, isn't it? The gospel is God's hope to a lost world, to a world that is dying, to a world that's desperately on the run from God. And we have that, that bread that feeds the hungry heart and feeds the hungry soul of humanity. So we have to engage our culture. David says to his friends, I'm not going to run and flee, but I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to trust God to protect me, even in the times, he says in verse 2, when the enemy has me in his sights. In fact, he uses some very graphic imagery. If you will look in verse number 2, he says, For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they might privately shoot at the upright of heart. Now, this is very literal for David. Because he knew of the times that Saul tried to kill him with a spear. You remember that? And David had to dodge that spear. Now he uses this imagery 
of someone taking a bow and arrow. And he says, the arrow is placed on the string. The bow is pulled back tightly and ready to be released. Uh, a number of years ago, I had some friends of mine that used to shoot in these uh, compound bow competitions. And it was quite a, quite a uh, almost looked like a machine when you see these compound bows. They had the sights on them. They had the stabilizer bars. You use a release. And they taught me to shoot uh, a few times. I never pursued it and never got very good at it, was just not all of that interested in it. But I remember a number of times shooting that and placing that sight when you look through the string and, and from the string into the bow and putting it right on the target and squeezing that release and releasing that arrow. That's the imagery that David gives us here, that he is the target for the arrows, uh, the arrows of those who do not know God's truth. And in our human culture and in our human society, if you stand for truth, if you value what is right, and if you speak what is wholesome and what is godly, you will be a target of the enemy. You will be a target of a culture that is running away from God, and you will be labeled everything under the sun if you stand for truth. Jeremiah 17 says this. This just happens to be, I was reading this to my wife yesterday because I read Bible Gateway uh, regularly, and this was the verse of the day in Bible Gateway. It's Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Satan has always had his bow bent toward God's people. He will try to wreck your marriage and to wreck your home. He will try to drive a wedge between you and your spouse and you and your children. And Satan is not happy that you love God and that you want to serve God. But in our culture, he uses his influence, Satan uses his influence to push God and God's people to, to the sidelines. I was reading an article just recently by Tony Perkins from the Family Research Council when he was talking about the sad state of affairs where we see so many acts of violence on our high school campuses, shootings, and uh, just that what happened a few weeks ago in Texas, and it just makes us all um, have a heart that is truly broken. But Tony Perkins says this about that. Now listen carefully. He writes, violence didn't get its start when God was expelled from school, but it's certainly been given a culture in which to thrive now that we have banned the discussion of the one who came that might have life and have it more abundantly. Instead, the one who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy has been given unhindered access. Our schools have been forced into marginalizing the source of life. Religion is out, and defining your own reality is in. How can we be shocked when these products of our godless culture shatter society's false sense of security built on a foundation of lies? In a world that's walked away from God's design on life, marriage, family, and our very identity, no one should be surprised at what unfolds. It's time to look beyond what's in the hands of these killers to what we've allowed to be put into their hearts and into their minds. What he is saying is that we have, we have sown to the wind 
and now we are reaping the whirlwind. We have pushed God out of schools and out of the public squares, and we have said to him, we don't need you anymore, and, and now we are reaping the consequences of a godless society. As the devil has his bow bent toward us, he has the arrow directed toward us. What do we expect if we say to God, we don't want you in our schools, we don't want you in uh, civil government, and if we need you, we'll let you know. Other than that, we want to uh, do our own thing our own way. For King David, when he was, was uh, in this wilderness situation, and it looked like his whole world was crumbling in around him, he says that ultimately I'm going to put my trust in God. The greatest thing that you can do, the greatest thing you can do for yourself and for your family is to put your complete trust in the Lord. Trust Him, love Him, live for Him. Put your hope in the Lord. And that's what we need as a nation, to look to Him and put our hope in the Lord. Secondly, David says that we not only have our hope in the Lord, but our help is in the Lord. Go to verse number 3 and notice what he says. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Circle that word, underline that word foundation. It comes from a Hebrew word that means the settled order of things. He's talking about values. He's talking about morality. He's talking about our worldview. And he is comparing all of that to a building. And he said, if you have a building whose foundation is decaying, it won't be long until the entirety of the building collapses. And if you have a nation whose values and morals and principles and guidelines are eroding and, and dissolving and being destroyed, it will not be long before that civilization comes crashing down. Let me show you. Let me show you what, I'm, what I mean by this. Hold your place. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is in many ways a disur disturbing psalm. And, and what I mean by that is it was written at a time uh, when the uh, Hebrews had been overrun by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. They, it was 606 B.C., and in a series of campaigns, Nebuchadnezzar came down into Jerusalem, tore the city down, tore the temple down, burned it to the ground, and carried off into captivity the Hebrews. Now, how would you feel if somebody came to your home and did that, and they laid waste to your home and to your family? They took your children and carried them off as captives into a strange land. That's the context for Psalm 137. And when you read this, what you see is the love of the nation that this psalmist has. He writes about his love for Zion. And he writes about how the Gentile Babylonians, the unbelieving Babylonians, mocked the Jews. They mocked the Hebrews for their defeat by Nebuchadnezzar. Look in uh, verse 1 of chapter 137. If you're listening, say amen. Notice he says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Let's move it into contemporary life. Say what happens to Ukraine or what happened to Ukraine by Russia happens to the United States by a, another country. And overnight, we're under attack. And overnight, our way of life is, is threatened. And then we are overtaken by another country and, and uh, forced to live in exile, many of us. We would sit down and we would think about 
the good old days when America was the way it was when we grew up. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He said, we sat down by the rivers of Babylon, and there we remembered what life used to be like in Israel. There we remember what life used to be like in Zion. But no, notice what he says. We hung our harps on the willow in the midst thereof, meaning we're not singing anymore. We're not writing any more psalms. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song. They that wasted us required us of mirth, saying, and they say this with mockery. Look at this. They say to the people in Israel who are now Babylonian captives, they say, sing us one of those songs of Zion. One of those psalms we have recorded for us in the 150 psalms. These Babylonians would say in mockery and in jeering and in jesting, uh, sing us one of those songs that you used to sing that talk about how great Israel was and how great your nation was. Look at it now. It just lies in ruins. And they were really making making fun and making sport of them. Notice verse number 5, or verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? For if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember her, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord. Now look at this. This is why I said it's a disturbing psalm in some ways. The children of Edom... In the day of Jerusalem, who said, King James uses the word, raise it. Some translations say, tear it down, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Here's what he is saying. Edom was the descendants of Esau. You remember Jacob and Esau were twin brothers? You remember that? They were twin brothers, but eventually became arch enemies. Even though they had made up uh, later in life, the, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. And when the Babylonians came in to ransack Jerusalem, instead of the Edomites supporting the Israelites, they supported the Babylonians. And they cheered at the demise of Israel, even though technically they were all Hebrews. And they should have been united together and coalesced together. But here you have the Edomites, who have become the arch enemy of the Israelites, and they're cheering this foreign invader who comes in, and they said, tear it all down. Tear the temple down, raise it, tear the foundations down, destroy it. And they were actually happy to see the demise of Israel. Now listen, Jesus wanted the best for his people and his country. And we too, as Christians, pray for and desire and long for the best for our country. But make no mistake about it, the foundations of our country are eroding. The moral fabric of our society is definitely unraveling. And it seems as though today that the only thing is wrong, the only thing that is wrong is to say that anything is wrong. Everything else no holds barred. Everything else seems to be okay. Our morals and our values. Listen, morals and values is not an invention of humanity. Morals and values and principles and integrity and character. Listen, those are scriptural principles. Those are not the inventions of mankind. 
But I want you to know the moral values that are given to us through the Scripture is being replaced by a what I call a pseudo-morality where the values of people are being slowly replaced by, by a man-centered environment, if you will. Meaning that man has set himself up as the center of the universe. We call it secular humanism. That man is now the center. And that man decides the values and the morals and what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. One man once said, if there is no God, anything goes. And it seems as though we are living in a society right now where most anything goes because we push God out of the center and we put man in the center as if all of the universe revolves around our opinions and our views and what we want to see and what is happening, the very foundation, the values and the principles that would make any country great are slowly being eroded. Our unbelieving culture is not only destroying the foundation, but is looking to remove the very founder himself, and that is the Lord. The love of country and self-sacrifice is being replaced with the love of self and a sense of entitlement. Just watch the news. No, don't watch the news, whatever you do. If you do, you hear things like critical race theory gaining, gaining momentum. And critical race theory basically says that America is inherently racist. And that all of our government institutions are racist. Police force is racist. Banking system, financial system is racist. The education system is racist. Politics is racist. And that at the very core of America, we're racist. Are there racist people in America? Absolutely. But I do not believe that America at its core is racist. I believe we have some scars, yes, deep scars. And we've made some terrible, terrible mistakes. But I do not believe at the core that America is racist. But when those foundational principles of right and wrong are destroyed, what do you do? That's what the the psalmist asks. If the foundations are destroyed, what does the righteous do? Well, one of the things we can do is continue to push back against a culture that seems to be picking up steam. I was encouraged to read of a small town, Haven, Kansas. Haven, Kansas, whose council members voted to remove the decal from their police cars that said, In God We Trust. They voted to remove that. And there was such an outcry and an uproar from the community that the council members reversed their decision and left the decals on the police cars that just simply said, in God we trust. I was encouraged to hear the Supreme Court and to read that the Supreme Court has finally decided to support Coach Joe Kennedy, the football coach who was fired because he was praying on a football field and said that prayer was his constitutional right. I celebrate that, church. Amen? I celebrate that. That's his constitutional right to pray. I celebrate the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Praise God for that, church. Listen to Proverbs 24. Rescue those being taken off to death. Save those stumbling toward slaughter. If you say, but we didn't know about this, 
Won't he who weighs the hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? After 50 years of a culture of death, 62 million babies aborted in the United States that finally our Supreme Court overturned that disastrous decision and once again says that there is value in human life from the moment of conception. I pray that we will see that tidal wave move more and more across our country. Amen, church? But my worry and my fear is that it seems that our president is determined to codify Roe versus Wade into federal law. And he blasted the Supreme Court and he called their decision, quote, destabilizing and outrageous. Join me in making that a matter of prayer that neither he nor those who peddled death will be successful in their attempts to reinstate that. God help us if we can't protect life. And if life is not protected, that's the very foundations of society that are being eroded. My prayer is the next step would be that the definition of marriage would be returned back to one man and one woman just as God intended. Man has no right to change what God has already established. And in 2015, when the Supreme Court ruled that marriage was no longer between one man and one woman, I'm telling you it was the most disastrous decision since that first decision of Roe versus Wade because it undermines the very fabric of society. It undermines the very foundation of society, and that is the family. Listen, if marriage is not between a man and a woman, how do you define it? Is it, is it defined as, as a man and many, many women or a woman and many, many men? If marriage is not between a man and a woman, how then would you define it? Is it, is it a, a mother can marry her son? A father can marry his daughter? Is it that a, a man could marry his dog? How do you define it? It opens up a Pandora's box. I choose to do what God says, and that is to believe that marriage is one man and one woman because God established it that way. And we pray that, that our nation would turn back to valuing those kinds of things. So in times like these, we need God first and foremost and recognize that God is our hope and recognize that God is our help. When the foundations are being hacked away, we go back to those first principles. David says, I trust in the Lord. Look in verse number four at what he says. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. It is not that God is just off somewhere ruling the universe and he's unconcerned about what happens here on planet earth. No. The psalmist is simply declaring that though the arrow is bent toward him and the target is between his shoulder blades and all the forces of Satan and hell are arrayed against him, he says God is still on his throne and God is still in control. And whatever happens in this world and whatever decision any court makes in this land, the good news is God is still on his throne and God is still in control. And that's ultimately who we look to for our help and for our hope. If you'll notice that phrase in verse number four that says his his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. It comes from a, a Hebrew phrase that means to squint. You know how you're really trying to, to focus on something and you might squint your eyes to zoom in? Really what the psalmist is saying is that God is on his throne 
And he's looking into the lives of men and women. And he is zooming in on my life and on your life. And on those who try to live for the Lord and those who will not. And he is examining the hearts and the lives of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now we can live for this world and we get what this world offers, which is very little. Or we live for God's kingdom to come. And it'll be an eternal kingdom. You know, the Bible says that one day, God on his throne will establish an earthly kingdom here. And it will not be a temporary kingdom ruled by by the whims of mankind. It will be an eternal, righteous kingdom without end. And if you know the Lord, you'll rule and reign with him in that eternal kingdom. God is our help. God is our hope. Listen, hasn't God always been faithful? Always faithful in every situation of life, in every avenue of life. There is never a time when God is not faithful. And I can't help but to think of that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Listen to the words for a moment, all right? Just listen. We know this hymn, but listen. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow or turning with thee. Thou changest not, and thy compassions fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars, their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And all God's people said, Amen. He is so very faithful. Our help comes from the Lord. Our hope comes from the Lord. And our future comes from the Lord. Look in verse number 5 very quickly. The Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked and him that love violence, his soul hates. It's just a a picture of of impending judgment upon unbelievers. Verse 6. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares. Now you don't hear this very often in churches today. But this is in the Bible. Look what he says. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares. Fire, brimstone, and a horrible tempest. And this shall be the portion of their cup. This will be their judgment, is what he says. J. Vernon McGee, who was a wonderful Presbyterian minister of yesteryear, said this about this passage. Now listen carefully. If you think God is just a lovey, if you think God is just lovey-dovey, You had better read this and some of the other psalms again. 
God hates the wicked who hold on to their wickedness. I don't think God loves the devil. I think God hates him. And he hates those who have no intention of turning to him. Frankly, I do not like this distinction that I hear today that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. God has loved you so much that he gave his son to die for you. But if you persist in sin and continue in that sin, then you are the enemy of God. And God is your enemy. God wants to save you. He will save you if you turn to him and forsake your iniquity. Until then, may I say, God is not a lovey-dovey, sentimental old gentleman from Georgia. That puts a new perspective on things, does it not? That sure, God is a God of love who loves the whole world so much that he gave his son to die. But God is also a God of judgment. And the heavy hand of God's judgment will fall on the unrighteous. And then that brings us to verse 7. Look at the future. For the righteous Lord loves righteousness. His countenance does behold the upright. Paul Harvey was correct when he said, there have always been times like these. And no matter what happens, the promises of God will still be true tomorrow. When I look at our culture and I see how it is a culture moving away from God at warp speed, it just reinforces to me the words of Jesus. The fields are ripened to harvest. And the darker that it gets here, the brighter the light of a Christian should shine. And that we engage this culture, we don't escape it. We engage the culture in truth, God's truth, and in love. That's how the Bible says that Jesus came. He came in grace and truth. And that's how we go. We engage the culture with God's truth and God's grace to say, there is a better life than what this world has to offer. And if you'll give yourself to Christ, you'll discover that abundant life. Let me lead you, leave you with a couple of verses, and we're going to close. Um, you might want to write some of these down and go back and look at them later. Exodus 15, 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God goes with you. 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is no rock like our God. 1 Kings 6. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Micah 7, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in the time of trouble. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Today, it might look like our world is spinning out of control and our world is, is just filled with havoc and chaos and turmoil. And indeed it is in many respects. But listen, that's not the last word. God will always have the last word. And what he says is always 